morning, friends. Uh, I'm Jamie Smith. I'm filling in for uh, pastors Jen and Tony this week. They were originally scheduled to be on vacation, I think, in the sunny south, and obviously that's not possible for them. But we uh, all agreed that they certainly deserve uh, some rest this week. I know you will share my gratitude for all the ways that they have cared for us, and uh, not least in their preaching. Uh, it's it's a remarkable thing to immediate, immediately be able to shift to this kind of format and yet still feel uh, the intimacy and warmth of their care. So, uh, Pastors Jen and Tony, we hope uh, you've enjoyed a little bit of rest this week. So I will be your pulpit supply for this morning. I um, After the scripture reading last week, I had actually said to the uh, elder in charge of this, I, I really thought we should enlist Jules de Young Shaver as pulpit supply. Uh, I think he would be fantastic. Um, folks thought maybe that was jumping the gun just a little bit. Uh, apparently, uh, he still has to finish his Hebrew course, I'm told. So uh, we will wait uh, expectantly for that opportunity. Let's pause for a moment in prayer uh, before we turn to God's word. Gracious God and Holy Spirit, you are the word of life to us. Your word is a light to our path. So illumine um, the darkness and shadow and give us peace in your word, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Several months ago, I heard this uh, fascinating conversation on NPR. I say several months ago, and it feels like a million years ago uh, since it was BC before COVID. Uh, but it was it was a, a world-class pianist named Igor Levitt. And the focus of the conversation was uh, the birthday of Beethoven, as, as I recall. But in, in the conversation, uh, Levitt made this fascinating observation. I think he was riffing on Miles Davis uh, a little bit, but he said, the fact is, we always hear music differently because the sounds around us are always changing. And I thought this was fascinating. He, he said, uh, um, even if we play the same Beethoven symphony over and over and over again for hundreds of years, Levitt says, we're going to hear it differently every single time because the sonic environment that we come from to that piece changes. And he says, we're going to keep hear it, hearing it differently in the future because in a way, the noise, if you will, uh, of our world is different. And so when we come to the concert hall, we come from a different place. And I, I thought this was fascinating. And it, it got me thinking that the same is absolutely true for how we hear God's word. That, that there's a sense in which, of course, God's word never changes. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we hear the same passages over and over and over again, especially across a Christian life. And yet, at the same time, we hear the same word of God in a different environment, in a different context, amidst different noise, so to speak. And all of a sudden, you've maybe had this experience where a parable you've heard a hundred times or a psalm you've read a thousand times um, 
strikes a note that you've never heard before because you're attuned differently because of the noise of your world. And so I've been wondering, well, how do we hear God's word when we're listening from a pandemic? How, how are we attuned to even very familiar passages when we read them in a situation of social, social isolation and, and when we read them in a space of anxiety that comes from uncertainty, the space in which we all find ourselves? How do we, how do we hear God's words differently in this moment amidst this noise? And as you've heard me say before, this is one of the reasons why I'm a, a great believer in the lectionary. I think it's a gift because in a sense, what happens is by, by following the pattern of the lectionary, we, God gives us words. The church gives us portions of God's word to listen to that we're not picking. And there's a sense in which this Sunday, Christians all over the world who are all experiencing this same challenge and unsettledness are hearing these same passages of scripture. And so what is, where's God's word for us in this today, um, in the stereo, if you will, of these two passages from the Gospel of Luke and First Peter? So really, my goal this morning is just to kind of listen slowly, if you will, to, to ruminate on these passages and to try to hear the good news that God wants us to hear in such a time as this. So let, let's start with the more familiar passage, I expect, which is this post-resurrection encounter on the road to a village called Emmaus. Some of you might be familiar with uh, a Danish philosopher and spiritual writer named Soren Kierkegaard. And at one place, Kierkegaard says, you know, we often read the Bible too fast. That is, what he says is we, we, we kind of read the Bible in such a way that we skate over the markers that remind us that these are scenes that unfold in time. So Kierkegaard actually focuses on, he says, you know, we read the story of Abraham taking his son Isaac to Mount Moriah, and we completely skate over. We barely notice that it took three days to get there. Can you imagine that journey? knowing what Abraham is going to do and to walk alongside his son for three days. So sometimes we need to read the Bible in a kind of slow motion. We, we, uh, uh, we need to slow it down to appreciate what's unfolding. So I'd like us to encounter this familiar passage on the road to Emmaus, but I'd like us to slow it down a bit and try to inhabit the story as it unfolds. So let's try to step into the flow of this a little bit. First of all, in this Gospel of Luke, verse 13, 24, 13, um, Luke reminds us that this is happening on the same day as the resurrection. So it's this is Easter afternoon. And for a small circle of people, Jesus's followers, you have to, you do have to remember, this is not what we are hearing in the Gospels is not on the CNN of the first century, right? This is still a corner of a small band of people who are grappling with. And what are they grappling with on Easter afternoon is mostly puzzlement of just what is happening. And the puzzlement 
of the of what's happening is still palpable in this afternoon. Why why is the tomb empty? What have they done with Jesus? Why are some people claiming that he's alive? So it's almost like to their grief has been added this uncertainty, which almost feels like another layer of cruelty, like the, the cosmos is just toying with them by teasing them now with this confusing news that, that Jesus might still be alive. And so now when we step into this passage, we find two disciples in exactly this state, and they are, they're leaving Jerusalem for a village about seven miles away called Emmaus. They're probably headed home. And in many ways, it wouldn't be surprising if it's a return journey of disappointment. By the way, um, let's not assume mistakenly that these are two men. The scriptures don't tell us. And in fact, there's very good reason to assume uh, that this could be a couple, a man and wife uh, 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 making their way home to Emmaus after having been a follower of Jesus for a time. Now, whenever we are listening to God's word, we should be listening for the good news. I, I think of it like Mr. Rogers' principle. You remember when Mr. Rogers said, no matter how scary the world might be, look for the helpers. Look for the helpers. And so too, friends, let me just encourage you, no matter how scary things might be, whenever you come to the Bible, listen for the good news. And if you want to hear good news, right from the get-go in this story, I think it already shows up in verse 15, in which Luke tells us, Jesus himself came up and walked alongside them. Jesus shows us the very heart of God, because Everything about Jesus is about God coming to us, coming up even to those of us who might be leaving Jerusalem, so to speak, in despair and confusion. Indeed, what is the incarnation of God in Christ but a cosmic version of God coming up to us, coming alongside us? And what do we see now in the risen Jesus? The God who comes to us in our anxiety in our uncertainty, in our grief, and he walks with us. But of course, here's the dramatic turn, and it's this curious pattern in these post-resurrection encounters. Luke tells us, but they were kept from recognizing him. This keeps happening in these post-resurrection encounters. Why, why don't they recognize him? Is it because the, the resurrected body is so different that, that it's barely human, that they can't sort of see what's in front of them? I, I don't think so, because it's not like they're mistaking him for an angel. They're not cowering in fear. Indeed, we, we've seen in other passages, somebody thinks this is the gardener. So why this lack of recognition? Why this, this inability to see? And I wonder if it isn't because in many ways, our expectations condition and constrain what we're able to see. I'm reminded of this really interesting uh, psychology experiment that happened, I think, back in the 50s uh, amongst Gestalt psychologists, a sort of school of psychology. And, and what they did was something very, very simple. They took a typical deck of cards, which we all know is composed of red diamonds and red hearts and black spades and black clubs. And they took that typical deck of cards and they, they changed it a bit and they introduced some anomalies 
They introduced some red clubs or some black diamonds. And they would insert a few of those anomalous, those different, those strange cards into this deck. And then they would have subjects and they would uh, um, give them glimpses. They would let cards, random cards from the deck, flash before them and ask them what they saw. The first time through, nobody sees the strange cards. Nobody recognizes the anomalies. And so they start doing it for a little bit longer. They give them a little longer glimpse of the cards. And now you can start to feel people getting unsettled and they keep slowing it down until eventually a few people are like, wait, wait a second. Was that a black diamond? That doesn't seem right, right? It took a long time for them to actually see what was right in front of them. Why? Because they came to the encounter with the assumption, the expectation that if I'm seeing cards, here's what I should see. It's what some people call the paradigm effect. It actually sort of constrains our ability to see. And I wonder if this isn't, that isn't something like what's going on here. When, when Jesus shows up, the possibility of that encounter is so strange, so out of the ordinary, so unexpected that it's almost like you wouldn't be able to recognize it. But, but whatever we make of their, their inability to recognize Jesus, I want us to notice now a second moment of good news, and it's this. Jesus' presence doesn't depend on their recognition. Jesus' presence actually doesn't depend on their recognition. Jesus is there for them. Jesus has appeared. And I, I think we have to be honest um, Jesus plays it a bit coy in the scene that unfolds from here, right? He, Jesus comes up to them along the way. He's like, oh, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, are you crazy? Are you the, have you not heard what's going on? Have you not heard about all the things that have happened? And Jesus is like, oh, yeah, hmm. what things? Now, this is where I, I think we get insight into just where the disciples are at. What, what they were expecting. And I think the most painful part of their testimony is in the past tense. When they tell this stranger that they're walking with, we had hoped. We had hoped that this would be the one who would redeem Israel. They thought they were following the prophet who would finally redeem Israel. And there, there may be a tinge of political liberation in this too, that, that this was the one who would help Israel throw off the yoke of Roman rule. And then Rome crushed their prophet. And what has really upended them is that some from their band of followers have now told them that the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. Now, notice, notice how they report this. They say, some of our women amazed us, the NIV says. Uh, the New Revised Standard Version says here, some, some of our women astounded us. Now, it, I had to dig into this. The Greek verb here has a kind of ambiguity that's, that's hard to capture. It's, it's actually a sense of being upended, of being off kilter. And, and the connotation isn't simply positive. What they're saying is, this story women have told us that Jesus is alive, it's thrown us for a loop. We saw him crucified, and we're not sure what to believe. 
And you can imagine that this is exactly what this pair were working through in their conversation as they were walking on the road when Jesus comes up to them. I, I don't know about you, I have to be honest that um, Jesus' immediate response to them is kind of difficult to hear. So I'm trying to listen for the grace in it when he says, oh, you foolish and slow to believe. And I, I, there might be something a little bit lost in translation here. What he says to them actually quite literally is, why are you so slow to understand and so slow of heart? Why are you so slow of heart? And I, I guess sometimes love does look like a challenge, a confrontation. And so the risen, unrecognized Jesus takes them through the scriptures, which you have to remember when Jesus is sort of walking them through the scriptures, it would be our Old Testament. And, and this is a remarkable scene in itself, I think, the, the word inviting them to the word. The word become flesh keeps pointing them to the word of God in the scriptures. And in the thrall of this conversation, in which Jesus points to the things concerning himself, the things they could have already known about the Messiah in the Old Testament, all of a sudden they're, they're in the thrall of this conversation and they're back at their village. They've made it to Emmaus. Time has flown by. And it looks like Jesus is going to keep going. And so the two disciples implore him, please stay. Now, here's where I want us to go back to this slow motion reading again and try to note how this is unfolding, right? When the, when the disciples, I didn't ever notice this until this week. When the disciples beg him to stay, they still don't recognize him. They're inviting Jesus to stay and they don't even realize it. In a way, they don't even know what they're asking for. Not yet. Their plea, please stay, is a prayer. And they don't even know it. Isn't that remarkable? And yet, isn't that still true? How, how many people are hungering for this sort of companion, but still don't know his name? How many people, puzzled and struggling to know what to believe, upended and off-kilter by everything that's happening and all the contradictory things they're being told, how many people are begging for someone to come near and not only explain the truth, but stay with them? That's a hunger for God. That's, that's the inbuilt desire of the human heart craving what it's made for. Even if they don't know God's name yet. And once again, please notice, Jesus stays. Again, here, here is the good news, friends. Jesus' presence doesn't depend on our recognition. And he responds even to our obscure, muddled prayers that are braided with confusion and misunderstanding. Indeed, what prayer isn't braided with our confusion and misunderstanding? Immediately after this, of course, is that famous scene. Jesus, who stays, sits at the table with them, 
takes the bread and giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to them and their eyes were opened. Now, is this magic? Is, is there some charm on the bread? I don't think so. I think this is more like the grace of divine deja vu. It's the aha of familiarity. When, when Jesus takes that bread and gives thanks and breaks it and give it, gives it to them, it's like, wait a second. I've been here before. I've seen this before. In uh, the email that provided a link to this service, uh, we sent along a couple of contemporary uh, um, visualizations, a couple of paintings of this uh, Emmaus encounter. I love both of them for different reasons, and, and I encourage you to just sort of dwell with them and spend some time with them. But one thing I love about the version by the Filipino painter Emmanuel Garibay is the sheer explosive joy around the table. And I, I kind of imagine how this unfolds, right? That the conversation has been deep and ongoing and they've found this fellow pilgrim on the way who's shaping their faith and they show hospitality and he agrees to stay. And when they sit down to eat and this stranger breaks the bread and a wave of recognition wells up like the dawning of a sunrise. And at first I imagine their mouths are just sort of open in awe. And then there's these guffaws of joyful recognition. Oh, of course. Now I see it. How, how did we recognize you before? Jesus. And it's a party. And I confess, I, I, I also kind of imagine this grin dawning on Jesus' face as he delights in this new depth of communion. And you can even hear in Luke's gospel, you can hear the disciples now reframing the entire walk to Emmaus in retrospect. They say, once they, once they see him, once they recognize him, they say, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road? Their hearts might have been slow, but they were burning. The, the recognition of understanding hadn't caught up yet, but even on their road, on that road, it's like their hearts knew something that their heads did not. Friends, we might not always see Jesus, either in the way we expect or the way we are used to. But sometimes our hearts know a presence that our eyes can't see. And once we know that Jesus' presence doesn't depend on our recognition, perhaps we can walk along the roads of uncertainty and anxiety and lack of understanding, not with solutions, but with, with a trust that is rooted in what we see Jesus doing here. Let me close with one final observation. Well, it's a, it's, it's a question. Who are we in this story? Or where are we in this Emmaus story? Or when are we in this story? 
are we like the disciples on the way to Emmaus, or are we all supposed to be the ones who recognize Jesus? To be honest, I, I don't think the answer is clear. And where we find ourselves depends a lot on when we find ourselves. Do, do you ever find it hard to see Jesus? To recognize him? I do. But again, I find encouragement from the scriptures in this regard. Note, note what immediately happens after they recognize Jesus. Look, he disappears. This is a bit of a pattern with the post-resurrection Jesus. And, and you might wonder, why does he keep doing this? Why the disappearing act? Until you realize, by disappearing, Jesus is letting his disciples practice what faith will be like. We don't get to cling to the resurrected Jesus in the flesh. We don't get the certainty of his immediate bodily presence. It turns out that the long walk of the Christian life is a lot like that road to Emmaus with flashes of recognition every once in a while. In fact, I think this finally points us to our reading this morning from 1 Peter. Peter's uh, in the epistle to Peter, he's, he's writing to these Christians who have been scattered because they have been suffering horrendous persecution under the emperor Nero. And so they're dispersed and they are ongoing, undergoing untold trials. And he reminds them that they are exiles awaiting a kingdom to come. They're redeemed by a risen king, Peter assures them. And that this God in the flesh, he says, was revealed in these last times for your sake. So again, we're, we, this sounds familiar. This is a God who comes near, a God who shows up, a God who comes to us and isn't waiting for us to find him. But when you hear 1 Peter after hearing the Emmaus story, there's this surprising red resonance because immediately before uh, the selection from 1 Peter this morning, just a little bit earlier in chapter 1, Peter commends these suffering disciples by saying, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Though you have not seen him. So, ah, we later disciples are not so different from those disciples on the Emmaus Road. We don't always get to see what we are called to do is trust and to love. So the God who comes near and stays exhorts us in 1 Peter 1, Love one another deeply from the heart. Friends, our hearts might sometimes be slow to understand, but let us never be slow to love one another deeply from the heart. Having been loved by this Jesus who comes to us, who walks alongside us, who stays with us, who is present with us even when we don't see him. Let us be those kinds of lovers of one another, now more than ever. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.